Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. We'll be right back to today's show. But before we do, I want to let you know that you can get a free copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma, when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, either on desktop or on your phone. All you have to do is go to Apple Podcasts, look up Think Unbroken, click follow in the top right, and then go and leave a review at the bottom. And when you leave that review, screenshot it and send it over to book.thinkunbroken.com 
where you can upload your contact and mailing information, and we will send you a free copy of this award-winning best-selling book, absolutely free, including shipping. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to upload your screenshot review from Apple Podcast for the Think Unbroken podcast. And until next time, my friend, be unbroken. I'll see you. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of live coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a waitlist for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Hope that you're doing well wherever you are in the world today. Very excited to be back with you with another episode with my guest, cognitive neuroscientist Jonas Kaplan. Jonas, my friend, how are you today? What is happening in your world? I'm doing great. I am happy to be talking to you. This should be a, a really interesting conversation. Yeah, I, I think so, man. I, I've spent a lot of time researching you over the years. You've been on a lot of our mutual friend shows. And the deeper that I got into the, more, your work, it kind of just reinforced a lot of the thought processes that I have around beliefs, around identity, around cognition. But more importantly, this whole thing that I created about Think Unbroken and this ability to kind of bend and fold and change the way we are in the world. But before we dive into those depths, I would love if you just take a moment and kind of lay out and explain not only the work you do, but like what is a cognitive neuroscientist? Yeah, a cognitive neuroscientist is someone who studies how the brain works. And, you know, I, I think our main job is to understand how it is that our minds, which are this uh, strange, mysterious phenomenon of consciousness, relates to what we know about the biology of the body and the brain. You know, ultimately, there's this piece of flesh, this piece of meat in our brains that's giving rise to us and our feelings of who we are and all of our thoughts. And um, all of the things that the brain does, um, it's pretty amazing if you think about it, that you can build this out of a piece of biology, out of a network of cells that can understand language, for example. You're listening to me speak right now, and it's that piece of flesh inside your head that's decoding all of the sounds coming in from your ears and turning them into meaning. And to me, that is just the biggest mystery in the universe. And so as a cognitive neuroscientist, it's my job to try to understand it better, try to give some insight into, into the relationship between the mind and the brain. And my own work in particular, you know, since I started in this field with an interest in, in consciousness and, and self and identity, I, I, my, my, my work has swirled around those concepts in various ways. And I've studied, uh, you know, for example, how the brain gives rise to beliefs and our, our deepest beliefs and values and why it is difficult to, to change our minds. and um, you know, where does the self and identity come from in the brain? 
the main technology that I use is, is brain imaging. So we do uh, what's called functional MRI, where we put people inside an MRI machine and we measure what's happening in their brain while they do various psychological tasks. That's one of the ways we can try to understand what the, what the brain is doing and how it works when we do these things that are, that are most central to, to who we are. Hey, what's up, Unbroken Nation? Just want to take a moment and invite you to be my guest at Think Unbroken Conference this November. That's right. Think Unbroken is hosting our Unbroken Con for free. It's five days of trauma transformation information with myself, special guests, and even some of the leading experts in trauma education from around the world. For five days, we're going to jump into what it means to actually take the steps to be Unbroken. All you have to do is register for free at unbrokencon.com. That's U-N-B-R-O-K-E-N-C-O-N.com. That's right. Five days of trauma transformation information with me, special guests, and some of the world's leading trauma-trained experts for free for five days this November. More details to come, but in the meantime, go to unbrokencon.com to register, and I'll see you there. What do you think is the most foundational, I, I want to use the word earth shattering here. It's probably not the right word, usage of word, but it's the word that I want to go to. What do you think is the most foundational <clears throat> earth shattering piece of information that you've discovered about the human brain when it comes to beliefs, identity, mindset? You know, I think it's more like a perspective that has emerged over, over, over time on, on the relationship between belief and identity. And it's an interesting relationship. You know, there are many things that we believe that, that aren't part of our identities. Uh, for example, uh, one of the, the stimuli we use in our studies, we try to find things that people believe in so we can measure what happens when they're thinking about them or when we challenge them. And for some of these things that we try to challenge uh, when we try to change people's minds, it's, it's very easy because these beliefs are not part of one's identity. So an, an example that we use in our studies is... Uh, this, this statement, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb. We ask people if they believe this. Uh, almost everybody in our studies, these are your uh, people in America, in the Los Angeles area, say that they believe this very strongly. Um, but it, it's pretty easy belief to change with evidence because nobody has much of an attachment to it. It's not something that too many people care about all that much. Like if you find out that his patent was invalidated or that there was really someone else in his lab working in his lab that they came up with a central idea or that there was a working prototype, you know, 30 years before him, you're, you're pretty willing to change your, your mind about that. Um, but when it comes to other things, it seems like we get attached to them. They become part of the self. They become part of who we are. And then once that happens, it's very difficult. They're very, very, very difficult to change a belief like that. You know, if you have a belief that has to do with your religion or your politics, you know, we ask people um, if they think uh, taxes on the wealthy should be changed, for example. These are things that people have a different stake in because in order to change those beliefs, they have to change who they are. And from the brain's perspective, you know, if you think about what the, what the brain is and what the brain's primary purpose is, Brain's primary purpose is to keep us alive, to protect ourselves. And in biology, we tend to think of that as the, the living organism, as the, the, the physical body. But from the brain's perspective, the physical body is not the only thing it needs to protect. It also adopts <clears throat> our psychology, our mind, our identity, our story of who we are as part of the self that requires protecting. And so what we see when we look at the brain, when these beliefs that are part of our identities are challenged, the brain is reacting 
in a protective defensive way in the same way that if the body was challenged or hurt, right? So the, the idea that the self, the psychological self is, is part of the sort of whole biological organism that the brain is working to keep alive and to protect, I think is an important perspective that, that's emerged from our work. How much of beliefs and identity are biological and come in our DNA versus are reinforced by our environments as we're in our adolescence? Yeah. I mean, from, from some perspective, it's all biological in the sense that uh, every, every belief or thought that you have is, is somehow arising from, from something that your brain does. That doesn't mean biological is not the same as innate. So, uh, you know, most beliefs are, are not innate. Well, I, I don't know about most, but many beliefs are not innate. You know, your belief about Thomas Edison is certainly something you learned. Um, there, there's information about the world that, that is innate. The brain comes with certain assumptions about the way physics work and about the way, uh, you know, light works that it uses for, for perception. Um, but of course, a lot of our beliefs and values come from our experiences with, with the world. And there's a huge social element to belief, right? I mean, if you have a belief that you share with other people, this becomes part of your social identity. Identity is not just about who you are as an individual. It's about who you relate with and who other people think you are and what you think of yourself, uh, how you think of yourself in, in relation to other people. And so beliefs that we share with other people, um, those become uh, very, very important to us because they, they form the foundations. They often form the foundations of those relationships. And in some cases, to change our beliefs is not just to change ourselves, but it's to change our relationships with other people. It's nice to lose relationships. One of the things that I personally struggled with the most in my journey was this idea about self and being able to understand that what was embedded and ingrained in me from an environmental perspective wasn't necessarily true. Now, this would be things like you're not good enough, you're not strong enough, you're a loser, you're a piece of shit. And this stuff from the youngest age growing up in a traumatic household became my identity. So I was leveraging my beliefs as my identity. And it wasn't until I realized that the brain is plastic and malleable that I was able to not only navigate that, but almost to this point, completely erase those ideals from myself. What is it that's happening in our developmental years where we hear things like that and we latch onto them so tightly that 45 years down the road, it's nothing's different? Yeah, it's pretty amazing, right? I mean, I, you know, there is a, a, a time when the, the first drafts of our autobiography are being written. And so there's a, a particularly important time in our lives when we're trying to uh, make meaning of of who we are in the world where when the brain is, is trying to stitch together a story and you know really the self let, let's let's talk about the self a little bit before we get deeper into this maybe we can it'll help we break it down <clears throat> into its parts because there are different parts to the self that have different biological bases so you know one aspect of of the self is the self in the here and now and the brain has a representation of our bodies in space and the uh, the, the external parts of our bodies, the internal parts of our body, a lot of the self we think is rooted in uh, the brain's systems for keeping track of what's happening inside of our, our body. We have this, this feeling of being alive that just comes from, uh, you know, homeostasis is the word in biology we use to refer to 
what life does to keep everything within the parameters it needs to maintain life. You know, if things get too hot or too cold, we're going to die. If our heart's beating too fast or too slow, the brain has to control and regulate all of this basic, these basic life processes. And so we have our bodies and, and some of our self is, is, uh, is related to just that feeling of being a body in space. But we also have a self that extends across time. You know, this idea of ourself as, as a person, as a, as a character in a, in a story that has certain qualities and um, certain goals and certain ideas. And, you know, when we ask people to think about those things and we look at what's happening in the brain, there are, there are certain brain networks that, are, that seem particularly important for thinking about oneself in this extended way, about, about who you are as, as a person over time. The interesting thing about those brain networks is that they are the same brain networks that uh, are, are involved when, when people read stories or, or watch movies or think about stories. They're, they're brain networks that seem to be involved in narrative comprehension. That, you know, understanding the world through stories is one of, the, one of the ways that the brain makes sense of things, one of the fundamental ways in which the brain makes sense of things, and certainly one of the fundamental ways in which we make sense of ourselves. And so we have this story but the brain is stitching together events and characters and ideas. We're one of the characters in there um, to make meaning out of, out of what's happening. And so the, there's this self that's, that's, that's an autobiography. And as you say, there's a time in life when that story is, is first being, being written that seems to have a lasting effect on us, that those first drafts of the story can become indelible and, and difficult to change. When I think about this, and try to make meaning of the way that our brains operate, understanding first and foremost, to your point, that it is about survival. If I were to kind of put them in a linear like activation, my, my thought process has been your brain first goes to survival and then it goes to meaning making. Would that hold true? I, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I think meaning making is ultimately serving survival as well. And, and, mm. and it serves the homeostatic function. The brain is trying to build models of the world in order to make better predictions about what's happening for the purposes of survival in, in one perspective, if you're just thinking about biology. And so that meaning making process, you know, as I said, it, it, survival is not just survival of the biological organism. It's survival of the psychological organism as well. And that meaning-making process is, is part of taking care of the homeostasis of our, of our psychological self. So if we take this evidence, right? So I've, I've often sat and thought in this idea that we are constantly bringing in information from the stimulus of our environment to categorize it into safety or danger because that becomes the precedent for everything that we do. But on a long enough timeline, you start to really understand, okay, this stuff is for sure safe. This stuff is for sure dangerous. But when your identity is tied into danger, and this is my thesis, um, I believe, and this is my personal journey, that childhood trauma and abuse, for me, it wasn't homelessness or the physical abuse or those ramifications. Trauma felt like the theft of identity. And that meant that whenever I showed up as myself, 
i.e. my beliefs, my identity, myself, and there was a ramification, my brain pulled me further away from that and created this place in which basically it was, how do I bend? How do I placate? How do I chameleon myself for survival? Mm. And thus, lack of identity became a survival mechanism. Mm. And what I'm wondering is, in your research and in your experience, does that feel like that holds true? That's a very interesting perspective. I mean, I, you know, I don't do, I don't know about, about trauma at all. So I think you're the expert there. Um, but, uh, I, I definitely think that, uh, our identities can come and go and, um, there's an advantage to having a strong, healthy identity, you know, a, a strong sense of autobiography and of who you are. And then there's also downsides to it, right? Because it can be limiting. If you just think of yourself as a, a loser, for example. Um, then you're not going to try to do anything else uh, that that challenges you. And so, as with most things in psychology, I feel like some kind of balance is important here in being able to engage with a healthy identity and also being able to have some separation, some kind of detachment from one's identity. You know, one of the things that we study in my lab is is meditation, mindfulness meditation, and this is a, a, a practice where by focusing on the present moment and practicing some kind of uh, objective non-interpretation of, of one's thoughts, um, you do become more present focused, which then kind of dissipates this narrative self to some degree. And we see those brain networks that support narrative cognition and autobiography tend to decrease in activity in experienced meditators. I know you've had Judd Brewer on your podcast. Some of his work has shown that as well. Um, and and, and this, this reflects a kind of disengagement with the autobiography. And there's something freeing about that, right? You're not bound by your ideas of who you are in that moment and by what you think, um, what kind of a person you think you are. You're just experiencing th the world in the present moment as it is. And there's an advantage to that. And yeah. again, it's all about balance because if you're always in that moment and then you can't... Uh, rebuild a, a healthy long-term identity. It's difficult to engage with the temporal structure of the world that you live in. Yeah. And it's really funny because that always leads me to this idea of asking myself, am I being self-aware right now? And often finding myself because of meditation, journaling, yoga, these kind of practices, being able to step deeper into that. But I, I remember, Jonas, there was this massive shift that happened where I was balancing these beliefs of what I thought I was versus who I wanted to be. And it was like, I was arguing with myself all the time about this. And I know a big part of what you talk about in your work is just that is there like, why is it that when introduced with new information that often proves our original thought processes and hypotheses about self negative, do we not switch or move towards being the other version of ourselves? Like, where is the gap that's there? It comes down to motivation. I mean, it, it, it's uh, it, first of all, it's a huge problem for us as as individuals and also as a culture that it's difficult for us to just objectively evaluate new information and change our our beliefs when uh, confronted with with facts that that do challenge what we believe in. I mean, we, we'd all, ideally, we, we'd really like to um, have our beliefs correspond with the way the world actually is. And if we have good data about the way the world actually is, we find out that, you know, this vaccine is working, for example, we want people to believe that. Um, and the fact that it so often doesn't work that way 
um, reflects the fact that we're we're motivated by things other than just being right. And you know, one of the the main motivations in the case you're talking about is uh, protecting the self, just feeling good about yourself. It feels bad to be wrong. Well, one of the things we find in our brain imaging studies is that emotion, emotional brain systems are very important for this process. We, we like to think of ourselves as, as uh, rationally uh, emotionless when we're evaluating information, but it doesn't, doesn't turn out that way at all. I mean, we use a lot of emotion and feeling to evaluate information, particularly when it comes to things that are identity related. And it just doesn't feel good to be challenged, to be wrong. And one way of dealing with that is to uh, just avoid any kind of information that challenges you. We're very good at doing that, particularly with the way that social media is set up nowadays. It's very easy to put yourself in a bubble and to uh, live your life in a way that um, completely avoids these, these feelings that come along with being challenged and potentially being wrong. And so avoidance is one thing. Counter-arguing is another. You mentioned uh, you know, arguing with yourself coming up with reasons why you shouldn't be listening to this information or why it might be wrong. All of these are part of a motivated reasoning process rather than a, a coldly rational one. And it's a big challenge for us. Is, is that why, <laughs> I'm thinking about this in real time, is that why when we have these moments where someone introduces new information to us from a rational perspective, you go, yeah, I get that. But then you double down on the thing that you initially had believed that's obviously not correct. Yeah, there's actually, you know, for there was some evidence that in some cases when presented with challenges, people's wrong initial beliefs can even get stronger because because of that doubling down effect. You kind of um, provoke all of the defensive responses that that people have. It's, you know, experimentally, this is called the backfire effect, and it's been kind of difficult to um, replicate experimentally. And so we don't really know yet uh, why, why sometimes it seemed to happen and, and most of the time now, it doesn't seem to happen. But certainly people are very, very defensive. You know, in our studies, we tell people we're about to challenge your, your beliefs and you're going to read these statements and they're the things you believe and then we're going to challenge them. And just telling people that, you know, as soon as people know a belief is coming up that they're about to be challenged on, we can see things happening in their brain uh, as they prepare their defenses that allow us to predict whether they're going to change their mind or not before they've even seen the evidence. So th this defensiveness, this defensive posture is, is, uh, is, is very, very common, particularly for these beliefs that are important for us. When, when you're challenging them, is that activating their, what I'm wondering is like what role the nervous system plays in this. And I'm wondering if this is activating their sympathetic nervous system in any way, like, is, is that perhaps a defensive mechanism? It could be. We didn't measure the peripheral nervous system, but we measured, uh, you know, uh, regions of the brain that are, are related to the sympathetic nervous system. For example, uh, the amygdala is a structure that tends to respond to fear um, and anxiety. And it's actually more complicated than that. The amygdala detects all kinds of emotionally salient events. But we found that the more people activated the amygdala when they were challenged, the less likely they were to change their minds. You know, suggesting that this kind of um, sort of defensive, uh, uh, fearful anxiety related response is, is, is predictive of just, just, uh, you know, being stubborn basically and, and protecting yourself. Yeah. That's really fascinating. The reason I went there is because like, and I've shared this on the show before my, my greatest flaw and my greatest character trait is stubbornness. And so when you were saying that, that's what I was thinking is like, there's something about 
that rooting your feet down in that moment that makes you feel safe. Right. And, but, but eventually in my experience, I've come to find the more you root down, the more you're stuck. And so that's really interesting. Uh, No, it's a, you know, it's a fine, it's a, it's a razor's edge thing to figure out because again, there's pros and cons. Like, as you say, there's real advantages to being, to being stubborn. And, you know, there's research showing that, you know, culturally speaking, when there are certain values that, that become really, really important to people and cultures, we call them sacred values or, or protected values. They're things that people just refuse to trade off under any circumstances, you know, um, Think about something like uh, a piece of land that is a uh, just a thing of value, and maybe I can buy a piece of land from you. But as soon as that land becomes sacred land, now you're not going to sell it, and we may even have have a go to war over it. Um, and, and offering you money for it, more money for it, is not going to make you likely to sell it. It's just outside the realm of of sort of cost benefit analysis for you. It's sacred. And this is, as I say, it's the basis for many of the conflicts that we have in the world are these these sacred values that people are unwilling to compromise on. On the other hand, you know, there's there's research showing that uh, cultures in in South America, for example, that had a sacred value for the environment um, ended up being more successful because they weren't willing to compromise their natural environment for other uh, for other things. And so when you when you really stick to something, um, you, you get the benefits of that as well yeah. as the, the downsides. I can see the pro and con in that. And part of me leans toward, yeah, there's a sense of freedom when you let go of it. The other side of it, you know, you stand fast and, you know, that that ties, I would have to assume that ties directly into identity and our belief in self, right? Yeah. And, and there's a there's a reason why um, the, the, that the, it's not so easy for us to change our minds. It, it, isn't, it isn't all bad. I mean, there, there must have been some, uh, benefit to that in our past that that led our biology to develop in that way. And it, there there are, for example, we know there are social benefits. If you uh, do share beliefs that don't change with other people, those form strong social bonds that can be the foundations of communities, you know, shared values and having things that we care about and that are important to us and don't change. Um, certainly conferred advantages for for humans in the past that were able to bond together to work together and 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 for example even fight others and be successful in that way um and if we had if we just change our minds at the drop of a hat you know if there's any small amount of evidence that that sways us uh, it, it would be a very unstable situation for the brain you know the brain is always trying to to build these models of the world and if you had to change your model of the world every every day that you encountered a new piece of information, it would be very, very confusing and it would be hard to predict anything about the world. Hey, Unbroken Nation, we'll be right back to the show, but I wanted to let you know that you can grab a copy of my first book, Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for free. If you go to book.thinkunbroken.com, you can download the PDF ebook version of the book and get everything that I know about the baseline of healing trauma for free downloaded to your email right now. Just go to book.thinkunbroken.com to download your copy of Think Unbroken, Understanding and Overcoming Childhood Trauma for a PDF for your phone. Again, that is book.thinkunbroken.com. So there's, there's, there's got to be some advantage to it. Is there a logical way to kind of lay out the framework for when it makes sense to have the openness to change your mind, to be of the learner mindset, to be anti-fragile for lack of a better way to phrase it versus to hold steadfast? Like, is there, is there some way that you can make meaning of the world of the environment and be like, 
now it makes sense for me to change my mind versus no, I need to stay the same. I mean, that is the million dollar question. I, I don't know if I have a, a good answer for that, but I think that's the kind of question that all of us should be thinking about. Um, I, I think, you know, in, in some sense, it, we, we have to be open to information and we have to put ourselves in a position where if there is good information, we're willing to listen to it and we're willing to change our minds. I, I don't think about, um, you know, about most things about that have to do with um, the nature of reality. We, we have to be open-minded and, and we shouldn't be totally fully committed to any particular belief. Um, but uh, how to evaluate that evidence and decide actually when to change is getting more and more difficult, honestly. The more information sources there are and the more authorities are difficult to trust. Um, so this is, a, this is a huge challenge. I think the way you phrased it is, is really um, getting to the heart of the issue. But I think this is a huge challenge for the human race right now. Yeah, I, I agree. Is... Self-narrative keeps coming back to me here in this conversation and thinking about, for me, the way I believe in the world, one of the most important things is the way that we think, right? The way we operate. This entire concept about being unbroken is about just that it's self-narrative. Can you define for us from your perspective exactly what self-narrative is and if it's actually like something practical and tangible that you can hold on to or if it's just this illusion of an idea of what we think we are? I think it's both simultaneously. And I think it's important. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it, 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 I think that's that's one of the sort of profound things about it. Is that like, so on, on the one hand is it is literally a narrative. You know, it's a story. And the brain works like an editor, like a film editor in a lot of ways to, to piece together all of the experiences and ideas and people and to select them and to put them together into a story that makes sense. Now, anytime you're editing, there's a bias involved. You know, you're, you're, you're presenting things in a certain way and the audience is going to have a particular um, reaction to it. And any edited piece of work, even if it has an element of truth to it, if the experiences that happen to you are real, the, the um, the explanations uh, make sense. It's still got some bias to it. And, and when it's yourself, you know, that's the thing you're the most biased about in anything in the world, <laughs> right? Um, and, and your brain is editing this story about yourself from that perspective. Um, so it is going to be a biased story and you have to know that that's what it is. And so in, in that sense, it, it is an illusion in the sense that it isn't, um, it is an explanation that the brain comes up with for what you're doing. It isn't, um, uh, some fact of the a world that exists outside of your brain. So in, in that sense, it's it's an illusion. Uh, but it certainly can have elements of reality. I mean, it really is very much like like film editing. I um, uh, I actually have a, a, a colleague at, at USC who's a, a filmmaker, and, and she is a, a film editor. And we have worked together for many years. And we, what we found is that there's so many similar things in, in terms of uh, what, what the brain does in, in, in putting the self together and what filmmakers do in the editing room that uh, we started a, our own podcast to explore this very issue. Um, and we talked to filmmakers and neuroscientists called, called Float, if people are interested. But the thing that came out of that is just, you know, one of the things that came out of it is just how, how similar this, this process that the brain um, does when it's creating stories to what filmmakers do in the editing room. And you just got to know the brain's leaving a lot on the editing room floor. And it's, it's not trying to tell the most um, unbiased documentary. It's trying to make a, a, uh, a hit movie for you. 
why why would it not just give you as is here is the answer here's the solution this is your life this is reality why would it not just lay it all out flat because like when i watch film the one thing that i love and i love film is there's always this space for interpretation Right. I just went and saw the new film uh, from Jordan Pill, Nope. And as mm. I'm sitting there watching this with my friends, we're all having this crazy different experience, which holds true in life. We're all having this crazy different experience. But if the foundation of the brain is within this survival mechanism, why would it not just give you all the data that you need at all times instead of leaving those gaps? Yeah, because it's it, it can't represent all of the information. And, and there's so much experience and there's so much memory. We number one, we don't remember everything that happens to us. And so there's got to be a selection process. You know, there's a selection process in our attention. Um, you know, we have so much perceptual information coming in at every moment that we have to decide which things are worth processing further. And that's where our attention comes in. That attention process is guided by our current goals, and we have to. We are always making selections and what we actually burn into our memories. And then when we have those memories. We we just can't rehearse them all and keep them all um, alive. And so there just has to be some some selection process. And because there's a selection process, it's basically a form of information compression is what a story is. You're you're compressing all of the ex experience and information to something that's that's simpler and and, and easier to store. Um, and and because we're doing that, and because it's about us, you know, and because it's biased, it's it's just never going to be just a, a complete history of of all the stuff that happened. You know, if you find yourself cheating on a test, you've you've got to decide: is it because I'm an asshole, or is it because you know I was pressured into this situation by other people? You know, it's one of those inter interpretations. You don't want to feel like an asshole. So you're more likely to go with the interpretation that you were pressured into it by other people and the sort of, you know, the, the, the bias unfolds from there. That's fascinating me. I, I wonder if part of that is because if you're an asshole, you get ostracized from the community and you don't want to ostracize yourself. I mean, yeah. I, I don't I don't have an answer for that, obviously, but that's where my my thought process went on it. One of the things you mentioned is about about memories. And, you know, there's so much research and studies that say the more that we remember things, the more that they tend to change. And why is that just because our brain is not big enough? Like, would we need to have a brain 10 times the size that we have now to have this linear experience? Maybe it would just have to be organized differently. I, I don't know about size. I mean, it just isn't really built to have um, these these vertical recalls. And, and it, you know, remember, the brain is just built out of um, scraps of biology. Um, life was doing what it could with, with what it had. It wasn't a, a prescient engineer building a, a computer system. It was built piece by piece little by little over over billions of years. And so it just kind of built up the way that it did. And yeah, like you said, the process of recalling a memory is a constructive process. We have to um, actually build our, our memories and ask ourselves questions. And that process can change the actual memories that are there. It's why things like eyewitness testimony is so unreliable. You know, you ask people seven times if they saw somebody in a green shirt, eventually, the idea of a guy in a green shirt is, is familiar because I've tried to recall it so many times that I, I might say yes. And so it, memory is, it's just the way it's built. Yeah. When when it comes to that, I, I had this really interesting experience where I did a hero dose of psilocybin while in a float tank, while listening to meditation music on an wow. island. Amazing. It was this 
really, really gnarly experience, but it was arguably one of the most healing experiences of my life because I, I'd been trapped in this flashback for years and years and years of this very young childhood trauma experience. And so I went, I did this psilocybin experience, hero dose. And in that, this really powerful thing happened where it felt like I effectively had closed the loop on the memory because I found this amazing sense of self-love, of empathy, of grace, of protection. And I know that you've talked about different various psychotropics like you know, LSD and mushrooms and things of that nature. What is really happening in the brain when we are stepping into what I'm going to call the other dimension? Wow. That's a, first of all, congratulations on doing that dose. That is a, a heroic thing to do. I know how uh, frightening it can be. Um, part of the reason it, it's frightening is because of this uh, self-protection mechanism we have. And when our, when our ego, our, our psychological sense is, is challenged by the fact that it might actually disintegrate, um, that, that biological response of fear is there. And I think that is one of the things that happens with, with psychedelics. I mean, first of all, we, uh, first answer to say is just we don't know. I mean, we're just learning about this little by little. And there, there is a growing amount of research on what happens in the, in the brain when we're on psychedelics, but unfortunately it's, it's less than we would have liked. The history of that science is, is uh, intertwined with politics and, and for many years we weren't able to do it. Um, but one of the things that, that does seem to happen is this change in the dynamics of, of brain networks. And one of the brain networks that, that is particularly affected is this, this network that we call the default mode network. And it seems to be uh, one of the networks very important for the autobiographical self. And so for, in my own perspective, this is some, some speculation added in with the, with the hard science that's there. Is I, I think one of the things that happens is that we do have this reduction in, in top-down processing in the brain, the constant prediction, meaning-making process that the brain has, which allows some of the sensory information to come in in a way that's, that's free from memory or more free from memory and, and learning than we might otherwise experience. It's partly why things feel new and they feel like, you know, you're seeing them, seeing the world in the way that you did when you were a child, because it's not through the lens of, of everything you've, you've previously learned, which is normally how we do experience the world. I mean, perceptually, our perceptual systems are so um, influenced and, and fine-tuned and um, uh, dependent upon our, our memories that it is often difficult to see things in a way that that's free from memory. And I think psychedelics give you a glimpse of that. Where, why does the fear response happen? So you talked about this idea, like the disintegration of the ego is, is the ego trying to survive as a defensive mechanism. And so it doesn't want to allow you to go into that space. I know that's a hard question to ask, but I'm just trying to make a little bit of meaning of what's actually happening because some people will do psychedelics and they will find God and other people will do psychedelics and they will be like, if I ever do that again, I'll probably jump off a roof. I, I felt both simultaneously, to be honest with you. I mean, mm. um, I, I think, think it is very scary to face ego death. Um, and um, I think the way you phrased it is, is one way of talking about it, that the, that the ego just doesn't, doesn't want to die. I mean, uh, I, I just think that the, the brain is so used to um, working hard to maintain the integrity of the self that when it's falling apart, it, it's just feels like something is going wrong or like one interpretation that the brain can make is that it, that, that something is going wrong. I think that's one of the things that can happen 
um, with experience with psychedelics is that you can become more comfortable with the fact that this is going to happen and uh, hopefully become less scared of it because you understand that it, that it is something that's ultimately beneficial to you. Yeah. I, I remember stepping into it the first time and I was probably 30, 31 when I had done this. I'd, I I'd, I'd baby stepped it. I'd done a couple milligrams leading up and I said, you know what? I'm just going to go all in. Let's see what happens. But I remember telling myself that I was going to allow the space for whatever was going to occur to occur and to not fight it. And whereas it could have been this really dark thing. It actually was. I mean, yes, it was dark in that I was like reliving that memory that I had, but it was also like you as a beautiful experience where I was able to come together with self. When, when you think about psychedelics, like is, why does it happen? Like if you do ayahuasca, if you do mushrooms, if you do plant medicines, or if you do, you know, LSD, like what is actually happening in the brain when you are taking and ingesting and metabolizing these things? Yeah, well, they're they're affecting the way that your synapses work. So, like any psychological uh, drug, or like most of them, they are changing the communication between neurons at this level of the synapse. So, there is a particular uh, serotonin receptor. You know, serotonin is a neurotransmitter. It's a, a molecule that that signals from one neuron to the next. And uh, most of these psychedelic substances will fit into that serotonin receptor. It's a particular subtype of serotonin receptor, the 5-HT2A receptor, that seems to be responsible for most of the psychedelic effects. And for example, if you block that receptor, you get rid of most of the effects of the drug. So this drug activates that receptor and causes a response in the neuron that wouldn't normally happen in the absence of that drug, which then leads to large scale changes in the dynamics of the way networks of neurons are interacting with each other. And you know, explanations beyond that you know, would require really understanding how the brain works, which we, we also don't understand completely. So, um, you know, w w for me, uh, I had the experience when I was much younger. I was uh, 17 when I first tried psilocybin. And this, this fact of, you know, this question of, of how it works and how is it possible that a molecule could change my entire experience of myself and reality and time and memories. I also had an experience where I felt like I was going back in time. I, I revisited some of my earliest childhood memories, and that was because we physically went to where they, they took place. Um, and I had some sort of time confusion that, that happened. And the fact that all of that profundity could happen because of a chemical interacting with the biology of my brain basically what drove me to become a cognitive neuroscience scientist. I mean, that, that, that question, that, that, visceral understanding of myself as a biological organism as 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 a collection of molecules that that could be changed so profoundly by just um the, the concentration of some molecule in my synapse um was was a, was the the first big insight that it gave to me yeah that's fascinating because i i, I think about my first journeys into anything that kind of changed my cognition right? Marijuana, especially very young, like I would have these incredible thoughts and memories. And sometimes it was like, I don't know if that happened or not. Right. Mm -hmm. And it was really strange because I started when I, when I heard and discovered and started researching stoned ape theory, I was like, yeah, okay, this makes a little bit more sense. 
in terms of evolution, in terms of what we're able to do, in terms of this growth in our brain, because there's that healing modality. We see it now in ketamine. We see it in psilocybin. Do you have any thoughts on why there's this actual healing process that's happening within the brain around whether it's PTSD or traumatic experience when it comes to the interjection of, of these medicines? Yeah. I mean, there, I guess there are a lot of levels to uh, that discussion. And, and one of them is, is sort of just like, why are these, why do these plants exist that, that can create these kinds of, of changes in us? And I think the, the basic answer to that is that we and the plants are of the same stuff. I mean, we, you know, we are um, very more similar, chemically speaking, to a plant than it might appear from our own sort of um, uh, e egocentric uh, human modern culture points of view. Um, but, you know, the, the, a lot of the molecules that, that make up a plant cell are, are the same basic molecules that, that make up us. And we are a part of the same process of, of life that 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 came out of this earth and so um fr from that perspective you know it makes sense that that plants could inter interact with us in, in very important ways now uh we also know that that because they do they have been very important parts of of human culture for our history and many of the spiritual practices that human cultures have had um, were inspired by the experiences of, of psychedelics because they have the power to dissolve the self and to interrupt this, this process of, of self-making that makes us feel separate from the world. It gives us the illusion of, of separateness, of being a separate thing from the world, of, of being not made of the same stuff that, that plants are, of having our own boundaries to us, which are really um, some kind of illusion of, of the brain. And so because of the power of these substances to interrupt that process and to give us these experiences, I think they are so um, potentially beneficial uh, for the kinds of situations you're talking about, PTSD, trauma, depression, but also for people who don't suffer from those things. I mean, you, you know, people can have uh, tremendously transformative experiences um, with, without some kind of profound suffering to begin with and, and can move in, in positive directions with interaction with these plants as well. So I, th I think they're, they're, they're very powerful and very interesting to me. Yeah. That's a really solid point. Do you think that, okay. So in consideration of stoned ape theory and now as putting ourselves in this position where we have access to not only study the impact of using these plant medicines, but do you think and this is going to be such a left field question as I'm out to ask you, it's kind of All weird, right. but, I, but nice. I have to, cause I really want to know. Do you think the future of human evolution will start here? <laughs> well, it didn't start here. I mean, because <laughs> if it, right, wait, the, the starting evolving. Yeah, exactly. It's just, there's no, the, there's no starting point you can pick that is an actual starting point that isn't arbitrary, except maybe the big bang. That's, that's really when, when human evolution started. Yeah. It's in my head, I was just thinking to myself, you know, if, if, stoned ape theory led to us, then what do we lead to? Right. <laughs> Something I, that's, uh, that's very interesting to think about, but uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. 
<laughs> yeah, I think that's ultimately it, right? We'll see. You know, this this conversation, Jonas, has been absolutely incredible. I appreciate you greatly. I, I feel like I have such a stronger foundational understanding of just identity and beliefs and why we operate the way that we do and looking at the way that our brain works in this environment, especially around this narrative of self. That I love that part of this conversation, and I appreciate you greatly. Um, before I ask you my last question, my friend, can you please tell everyone where they can find you? Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter at Jonas underscore Kaplan. Brilliant. And of course, we'll put the links in the show notes for the audience. My last question for you, my friend, what does it mean to you to be unbroken? What does it mean to be unbroken? Well, I'm going to answer that question in a weird way because we're talking about illusions of the brain. Uh, the thing that comes to mind for me is that the difference between broken and unbroken is also an illusion of the brain, right? Th these are these are concepts that that what what are the, one thing that the brain does in its meaning making process is to divide the world up into pieces, and these opposites, hot, cold, up, down, broken, unbroken, are useful for the brain in terms of making models of the world. But ultimately, they're provisional, and the deepest insights, the kind of insights that come from the psychedelics that we've been talking about. Um, show you that these divisions that the brain makes between things like broken and unbroken are ultimately arbitrary. They aren't actually out there in the world. They're, they're in our heads. So that's my answer. I actually love that answer. Thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you being here. Unbroken Nation, thank you for listening. Please like, subscribe, comment, share, tell a friend. And until next time, my friends, be unbroken. I'll see ya. We'll be right back to the show, my friend, but I wanted to let you know about our brand new podcast community for Think Unbroken Podcast. I know that for so many trauma survivors like myself, for the longest time, I felt alone, like nobody got it, nobody understood, and that I was just going to have to figure this out on my own. But that's not true. And the reason why we created our brand new Think Unbroken Academy podcast community is so that we can bring all the members of the Unbroken Nation together in a place where we can learn, grow, heal, change, and transform our trauma into triumph. I would love to have you come and be a part of the brand new community. Just check out thinkunbrokenacademy.com or click the link in the podcast description. And I cannot wait to see you there, my friend. Again, just head over to thinkunbrokenacademy.com. And until then, be unbroken. Thank you so much for listening to Think Unbroken. Please share this episode with someone who could use it and help us move forward in our mission of ending generational trauma in our lifetime. And if you would, please take five seconds to pop on iTunes or Spotify, hit that five star, leave a review, and you can also reach out to us on social at Michael Unbroken or at Think Unbroken. And of course, you can check out our YouTube channel at Think Unbroken. Thank you for being a part of Unbroken Nation, my friends, and until next time, be unbroken. Hey, my friends, we will be right back to the show, but I have a question for you. Are you struggling with the impact of childhood trauma? Well, know that you're not alone. I'm here to let you know that I'm starting a brand new weekly coaching group that includes a year of life coaching, accountability, support, habit and goal setting, and more. I'm starting a wait list for the group right now, and I'm only taking a handful of people. 
And I'll let you know that through this personalized coaching, we'll work together to help you understand how your childhood trauma has shaped your beliefs, behaviors, emotions, and will help you create a roadmap for healing and growth. Right now, you can schedule an absolutely free coaching session with me and get put on the wait list if you go to thinkunbroken.com. My friends, it's your time to turn your trauma into triumph, breakdowns into breakthroughs, and become the hero of your own story. And I'm here to support you in doing that. Just go to thinkunbroken.com to register for a free coaching call with me and to get put on the wait list for the brand new weekly coaching program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.